Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode to Season 6, Episode 35, Making Sense of Things. In this episode, we finally have moved into our new investigation into who killed Jim Melgar. The first step in that investigation was to determine were there any other similar crimes in the area around the same time that Jim was killed. This is critical information because the Melgar home invasion and murder had a very specific M.O., And what you heard in this week's episode is that that M.O., or at least portions of it, existed in at least one other home invasion in the area in 2012. And we're going to get started here in just a minute, but uh, I'd like to give Mike an opportunity to welcome me back to the studio. We haven't sat next to each other in two months. Welcome back, Bob. It's good to have you back in the studio, man. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be back. (laughs) All right, enough goofing around, Bob. Let's get started. Sounds great. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, listener, Wendell has four questions. Wendell says, I know it's not likely that Bob will get another shot at interviewing Isabel, but I have some follow-up questions, and I wonder if these topics were discussed in the original conversation. His first question is, were Isabel, her husband, or her kids Spanish speakers? If so, did they speak to the intruders in Spanish or English? Some of us were throwing around the theory a while back that this group of home invaders was specifically targeting Spanish-speaking victims perhaps because it would be easier for them to control them. So first, let me address the fact that I probably won't get another chance to interview Isabel. So I I just want to share with you guys how this whole thing came about, because I'm sure, Mike, you're going to have questions from listeners that I'm not going to be able to answer, uh, which is unfortunate. But this is what happened. I tried reaching out to the victims in this case through about 15 different methods. I mean, I tried reaching out to friends, family, through Facebook, phone calls, emails, their place of business, 
and just couldn't get any response. And so, so they weren't declining to do an interview. I just could not get a response from them. So I didn't even know for sure if they were getting the messages. So as I said in this week's episode, I put a call out on the Facebook page. I wrote up a letter for someone in the Houston area. And that's when listener Tony stepped up and said, you know, he called me and, and said that he's willing to help whatever I needed. I told him, I just want somebody to hand deliver this letter. It was a short note explaining who I am, what I'm doing, and why I'd like to talk to them in a phone number. At least that way, I would know for sure that they got the message and they decided to decline if they didn't reach back out to me. So I emailed the letter to Tony. He printed it. He drove up to Kingwood, knocked on the door, and the husband in this case answered. And he, from what Tony told me, was not thrilled to see him. So apparently he did know that I was trying to reach out to him because as soon as Tony said, you know, hey, I'm reaching out to you, you know, my friend's an investigative journalist. And he's trying to talk to you. And he immediately said, who, Bob Ruff? And so he knew that he had been, he'd been getting the messages or friends or family or whoever had been telling him that I was trying to reach out to him. And as, as, again, as Tony put it to me, he was not happy. He was not thrilled that, uh, that I was trying so hard to get a hold of him. So Tony leaves, calls me, and says, hey, and tells me just what I just told you, that you know this guy's not happy about it. He does know. And I thought, okay, well. I guess I'm not going to get the interview. And it really wasn't about an interview. I just wanted the information. So there's, you know, on the investigative side, I needed information about the case. And then, of course, on the podcast producer side, I would love to capture that in a recording. So as I'm talking to Tony, my phone rings with a Houston number. And so I hang up on him and answer it. And it is the woman that I was referring to as Isabel, the wife. And so what it seemed to be was the husband doesn't want anything to do with any of this. I mean, remember, the people that invaded their home and terrorized them are still out and free. You know, so they they don't necessarily want to make a big stink about this. So Isabel, the wife, called me, and she was a little skeptical. I told her who I was, you know, that, that you know, I do an investigative podcast, and I'd like to interview her for the podcast. And I, I wasn't in the studio. I wasn't where I could record. But she agreed, and so you know, I grabbed my notepad and pencil and started writing down notes, and I, I talked to her for almost an hour. And then as we got towards the end of the conversation, she asked me what all would be involved in doing an interview. I told her that it's just just basically what we just did. It would just be over the phone, and I would just like this, but I would record it. And she said, okay, you know what? I, th- I think I'm willing to do that. I'll do an interview for you. And so the reason I don't have answers to a lot of the questions that are coming is, I stopped at that point asking very detailed questions about certain aspects of the crime because I thought I was going to do an interview with her the very next day. So, I mean, I got a lot of the information, obviously, in an hour's time, but there were some very specific questions I wanted to ask. And and that just comes from the podcast producer side of me who wants to capture everything organically. You know, I don't want to, you know, have some, some person that's not in this business to get on the phone to do an interview and have to, you know, pretend to tell me something new that I already know. So that's why I don't have answers to a lot of the questions. But so from that point forward, I text her the next day and say, Hey, what's a good time? Text her again, call, text, call. And I have not received any response back since then. I suspect that it's possible the number that, that she called from might have been the husband's number who doesn't want to be involved in this, and she may not even be getting the messages. I really don't know. That's just an assumption. But that's just based on my conversation with her because she was very friendly. She was very happy to talk to me and was was happy to do an interview uh, in, the, in the following days. So it, it would seem odd if she just changed her mind. But anyway, that's why I don't 
have necessarily all the answers to the questions you're asking. And along that line, as far as if they're Spanish speakers or not, I don't know the answer to that question. I assume that they are, but again, that's assumption, and that's just based on some background checking that I've done and my conversation with Isabel uh, and you know her accent and things. So it seems as though, yes, they are Spanish speakers, but I cannot say with 100% assurity that they are. Okay, next he says, do I understand correctly that the intruders were waiting in the backyard until the husband got home, despite the fact that Isabel and her kids were awake inside? Doesn't this indicate some knowledge of their schedule? That would definitely indicate some knowledge of their schedule, but again, that's another area that's a little gray. So Isabel told me that her husband came home, uh, he went to the front door, and that the home invaders were waiting in the bushes in the backyard. But then there, there's also um, there, there's a there's a website out there that's kind of a forum for areas uh, residents of the Kingwood area, and she was actually discussing it in that forum. And in that forum, it says that it was actually her son that let her husband and the intruder in through the front door. But then she says that apparent the way she words it is apparently they were hiding in the bushes behind the house. So she didn't tell me that, but again, I didn't get that specific with her. The impression that I got was that that he went to the front door. That's where he was confronted. They came in the back because she said they were waiting in the backyard in the bushes. But what's not apparent, and it's kind of the same thing when it comes to how Oscar Garcia was identified in the lineup, is how they know that they were hiding in the bushes in the backyard. Because there doesn't seem to be any witnesses that saw them doing that. So I don't know if that's just an assumption. I don't know. It seems like that's what it is, that it's an assumption they were hiding back there. But uh, because it, it didn't say that her husband saw them coming from the backyard, and there's certainly no way they could know how long they were hiding in the backyard if they were or if they were in the bushes. Okay, his third question is, did the intruders give any other indication that they knew things about the family, what might be in the house, what they did for a living, etc.? Were there any clues that slipped out from their verbal statements that could give us some insight? It didn't sound like it. Uh, when I spoke with Isabel, she didn't say anything about th them saying they had any knowledge of what they did for a living or their business. She said that she thinks that they were targeted because they owned a business. They owned a limousine business. And so her husband came home, I believe, in a limousine. And so they think that's maybe why they were targeted. But again, those are assumptions. But they also came in and said that they wanted a safe. They wanted them to open a safe. And they were insisting they had one when, in fact, this family did not have one. So they didn't have too much intimate knowledge of the family. It seems like the home invaders made some assumptions. And along those lines, one listener had messaged me that it's a possibility that these people were targeted along with Jim Melgar because, and, and this is, and, and I certainly don't mean to, to spread any kind of stereotype. I do not know this. I did not know this. But this individual was a Hispanic individual that told me that in his culture, a lot of people don't trust banks and will keep a lot of cash in the house. And oftentimes they have safes. And maybe that's why uh, Hispanic families were targeted. Uh, I do not know if that's true, but that's something to put out there for any of you that maybe live in that world or are part of that culture. Maybe be, might be able to add a little more to that. But it just it just kind of struck me when he said that, that that does make sense if that is, in fact, a cultural norm. For Hispanic families. I don't know. Okay, and his last point, if I understand correctly, a portion of the intruders had guns and others didn't. In addition, some intruders stayed to keep watch on the family while others searched the house. Do we know if the men assigned to keep watch were specifically the ones with weapons? 
I ask because I'm wondering if Jim was at one time being watched by someone who was not armed, and that's why he decided to pounce. It sounded to me like the scene at Isabel's house was just absolute chaos and everything happened very fast. From what she told me, they kind of rushed in the door with her husband. They had guns pulled. Now, when I asked her specifically, did all of them have guns? She said, no, they didn't all have guns. But in that website I mentioned earlier, she said, you know, these all these guys came in armed with guns. But when I asked her again, the specific question, did all of them have guns? She said, no, they didn't all. But it happened very quickly. So she said that in the in the website, she didn't tell me this specifically. She just told me that they went and one of them went and rounded up the rest of her family, which is her, her other child that was in, in their bedroom. Uh, and the website, it says that they actually like like kicked this kid in the head to wake him up and drug him downstairs. So imagine this very frantically. At one point, you're sitting up watching TV with your kid. The father knocks on the door. Kid opens the door and bam, everybody rushes in. There's guns drawn. They're wearing ski masks, gloves. They're grabbing one kid, and then within a matter of minutes, they're on the couch, and they threw a blanket over their head, and then they started tying them up, which, again, they used phone cords, extension cords, belts to robes, anything they could find in the house, and then the husband was face down. He was face down just like Sandy with his ankles bound and his arms bound behind his back. So really, I don't think that Isabel even knows for sure who was keeping watch over her because... Once they were tied up on the couch, they threw a blanket over their head so they couldn't see anything, and so they, they don't know who was watching. They couldn't see who was was keeping them hostage. And then again, the husband was not in that room. He was back by the door, and he was face down on the ground, so he really couldn't see either. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Gerald says, will you go into more detail regarding the way the husband in the Kingwood invasion was bound? Really, I've gone into as much detail as I can. From when I, when I spoke with Isabel, again, that was one of the very direct questions I wanted to ask her, very specific questions that I didn't get a chance to because we never, we never reconnected after that first conversation. What she told me was that he was hogtied. And I want to ask a little more. She said, no, it, it was it was two bindings. His ankles were bound and then her, his arms were behind his back. Uh, but I don't know if it was, you know, down at the wrists or the arms like Sandy. I don't know. It was just like that. Whatever it was, he was able to get out pretty quickly once they they fled the scene, once they were out the door. Jacqueline says, because the identified member of this group has been deported, would that person be extradited to the United States to face charges? Also. Is there any way for authorities to try and question this woman again without having to go through that process? I definitely don't think there's any way for them to question her without extradition. But then the the greater issue is I don't think that the DA's office is going to, or the sheriff's department for that matter, 
would be motivated. And that's something that's not specific to this case, just in general. They have a conviction. They're not going to go out of their way to go track, especially not to another country, to track somebody down to find out if, if they were involved in the murder. I'll have to look that up. You know, certain countries have extradition agreements with the United States and some don't. And it depends on what, you know, what type of crime or felony we're dealing with. Uh, murder certainly would be on the top of that list. So if Colombia does have an extradition agreement with the United States, and certainly for a murder, she would be extradited. But I, I really don't know what the status is as far as that's concerned. Okay, Teresa says to us, is there any info on how big the female that was caught was? If so, it's so crazy that there isn't any blood leaving the scene. Is it possible that especially if it was a smaller female, someone picked her up and carried her out of the house so as not to leave a trail? Might help explain why one of the bags was left behind too. Well, I do know the size. She was actually very, very close to Sandy's size. Cindy Ed Gonzalez at the time of her arrest was five foot two, one hundred and thirty pounds. So you're very close to Sandy's same dimensions. Uh as far as picking her up, no. I don't I don't think that is anything that we even have to consider. I'm sure it's a possibility, but I don't think that a group of home invaders, if that's what this was, would, you know, pick somebody up and carry them to keep them from leaving any blood drops in the house. That just that seems extreme. Uh, I think that with the shirt in the bathtub, along with the towels, uh, I think the much more likely scenario is that the other members of the team, you know, handed her uh, the towels and, and she took her bloody shirt off, wiped herself off with the towels and then was able to walk away. You know, as Rossi testified to, she wouldn't necessarily have blood or whoever the attacker was wouldn't necessarily have blood on their feet because of the way, you know, the, the basically the attacker would have been face to face with Jim as he was laying down. And, you know, all the injuries are up high. There's not a lot of blood down by the threshold to the doorway into the closet. So there wouldn't necessarily be blood on their feet. And I think there's certainly evidence on the crime scene that our killer cleaned themselves up standing right there outside the closet before they walked any further. Bethany says, do you know if there's any known connection between Oscar Garcia and Siniad? You know, I don't know if they have any known connection. However... I did see just today as I'm researching for this week's episode uh, on the Harris County website, I was going through a lot of the case files and Isabel told me that she didn't think that Sinead would, would say anything about the other suspects in the case. And I know that that happened, you know, for a year that went on that she wouldn't share anything because she was, she was constantly, Isabel was constantly calling the sheriff's department, asking for updates, what's going on. Have you caught these people yet? And, and they were telling her that she won't give anybody else up you know, the, the rest of the group. And she knows for a fact that there was four men in the house that day. So th she knows for a fact that there was people that weren't caught. And she said that, you know, they identified Oscar Garcia in the lineup or their son did, you know, as she said that, you know, they, her and her husband picked the wrong person and her son picked the right person, which is another whole story in and of itself, because she also said they were wearing ski masks the entire time. So I don't know how they identified them. But when I looked at the case file, Oscar Garcia was scheduled to go to trial, and at the last minute, he struck a plea deal for eight years, and, and that was, they, there was never a trial. But you can actually look in the Harris County website from the district clerk's office, the witness list, and on the witness list was Siniad Gonzalez as a prosecution's witness against Oscar Garcia. Now, I don't know if that was just a threat, you know, there's posturing that goes on in cases like this where prosecutors or defense attorneys might put people's name on the list just to kind of scare or spook the other person. 
But I, I think that it, it seems likely that Sinead may have finally flipped on him because I, I can't figure out how the police got to Oscar because there was no fingerprints. There was no DNA. Everyone was wearing masks. You know, so how would they get to him unless Sinead pointed them in their direction? And also, Sinead only got five years, but then, of course, was immediately deported. So it seems like she would have had to give something up for that deal. Oh, and also, I wanted to touch on the fact real quick, so we don't get a million Facebook messages and emails and Twitter messages. So several people told me that her name is actually pronounced Sinead, like Sinead O'Connor and not Sinead. Uh, I just want to make clear to everyone that as far as I know, I'm not saying it wrong. I'm specifically saying it Sinead because that's what it is. Uh, and the, the difference is Sinead is is a Irish name, and it's S-I-N-E-A-D. And this is Sinead, which is a Hispanic name, which is S-I-N-I-A-D. So it is, in fact, pronounced Sinead and not Sinead. Carol says, has Sandra been shown a photo of the woman arrested for the Kingwood robbery, and does it look like the young Hispanic woman she saw? Uh, yeah, she actually has been. Uh, it was prior to trial. Her lawyer uh, was sending some links over of some similar home invasions. And Sinead was one of the people that Sandy said, yes, that could be her. She couldn't say that that was her. And what I'm talking about is, to refresh everyone's memory, uh, I remember back that you know Sandy had this memory of seeing this woman in the bathroom and she thought it was Monica or Marissa's friend. Uh, and once she realized that it wasn't, memory started to come back to her after a few days. And she realized that that was a memory of someone standing in the bathroom as she was being tied up. So that's what she's talking about, the woman that, that Sandy saw. And it wasn't like they said, hey, do you know this woman? She was sent a, a series of links by her attorney. At least that's the way I understand it from from Liz. Uh, and asked, you know, any of the people or suspects in these cases, do any of them look familiar to you? And she said, yes, this one woman, she could be the one, but it's hard to say. Because, of course, in the mugshot, you know, she's not wearing any makeup and she's she looks pretty rough in her mugshot photo. But again, I want to stress that she didn't identify Sinead as the woman in the bathroom, but she said it could be her. She was the only one in the the group of the photos that she saw that she said, yes, that could be her. Mary says, I'm wondering if there's enough info in the current transcripts, investigation notes, etc. from the Kingwood case that would be useful to Sandra's case. And are there plans to obtain them to research? Yes, I think that th there's obviously a lot more to the story than what we know. And there are other cases that these people are connected to that uh, I'm going to be talking about a little bit on Sunday. And so, yeah, so I have filed open records requests with the Harris County DA's office. I reached out to, I've mentioned him before, Brian Rose is the guy that handles the records at Harris County. He's done a real good job of getting us everything we need for this case. So hopefully they shouldn't be big files. So I'm hoping that we can get a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, but I do know that uh, the day that I'm recording this, that he's actually out of the office until tomorrow. So I, I won't know back uh, until at least tomorrow what the status is of that. But yes, I have filed the open records request and we are hoping to get the rest of those case files as soon as possible. Lauren says, is the Kingwood case the only known case in the area with a similar MO? Would anyone involved with the Kingwood case be willing to talk on the podcast? This includes law enforcement, lawyers, etc. This is absolutely not the only known case. There was actually a string of home invasions around Kingwood. And again, I'm going to be getting into more of this stuff on Sunday as we move forward and further into this investigation. Uh, but there was there, there was a string of of similar type home invasions 
there was even one where someone was actually tied into put into a closet where the husband was put into a closet. So, you know, as as I mentioned, I don't know it was last week or the week before that, you know, oftentimes what you see with kind of career criminals like this is they evolve over time. So, you know, it, it's trial and error. They they try to commit a crime or they commit a crime. They see what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, and again, in, in, in this case, Siniad was caught because they just had the, the victims tied up and they were able to untie themselves so quickly. At least the husband was so quickly that he was able to get out and see them pulling away. So he knew what vehicles they were leaving in. And so that was a huge mistake. So if and I'm not saying these two cases absolutely are related, but let's just assume let's pretend for a minute they are and, and why maybe in the next one they might lock or barricade somebody in the closet. Well, they're tying them up. They're separating, just like Jim Clemente said, that you would oftentimes see in scenarios like this where, you know, the, the, the family is separated and, and part of the family is used as leverage to get the other, usually the, the stronger one, as he put it, you know, or the larger one, whatever it is, the husband in this case, where they, you know, they, they use the leverage of the rest of the family to get him to do what they want. And everything goes smoothly. They have all the time in the world. They're able to work through the house. They don't leave any DNA. They don't leave any fingerprints or wearing masks and gloves. But they got busted because the the family ran out uh, and got untied. So maybe the next the way to make that not happen is that when you tie them up, tie them up somewhere where they could be locked in, like a closet with a door barricading the door shut. That way, even if they untie themselves, it's going to take them a while to get out. Now, and then the other, the biggest mistake they made, and, and I don't know if Siniad or Oscar Garcia even know this is what happened, but was, was leaving the iPad on. You know, having that iPad on is what ultimately caught them because they at least, they gave the police the description of the vehicles, but it doesn't seem like the police were really doing much with that information. It was actually them, according to Isabel, that tracked Siniad down and caught her because of the iPad. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Marcy says, were there any laundry baskets or other baskets missing from the Melgar home? You know, that's a really good question. And before we recorded, Mike and I started kind of scanning through the crime scene photos to see if there was any obvious indication that there was a laundry basket missing. And I, I didn't see any. Um, you know, there, there's a laundry basket on where all do we see him? We saw there's there's the one that's on the treadmill in the master bedroom. Right. Which is a little obstructed. I think there's a fan in the way. Uh, that or, or was it the uh, the robe was hanging the over. robe hanging down? Mm-hmm. I just remember it was kind of visually obstructed, right? Yeah, and then there was another one in one of the closets, right? In, in Liz's closet in her room, uh, there was one in the closet full of books, and then there was the one in the the guest bedroom, this this kind of spare bedroom, but that one was very obstructed, right? Um, it was back behind, so that's the room. If you look at the crime scene photos. With the the ironing board and then the tabletop that Liz had painted that was knocked down onto the ironing board, and there, there's a basket, a laundry basket behind that, and it's full of folded clothes. Right. Um, and then there was three baskets in the laundry room above the dryer, I think, 
yeah, kind of wicker baskets, not necessarily like your conventional plastic, holy laundry basket, but yeah, I, I wouldn't describe them as laundry baskets. They looked like they were more for storage, but they were baskets in the laundry room. But yeah, like Mike said, they were they were wicker baskets. But I didn't see, and, and I asked Liz actually, and she's going to go through the crime scene photos and look again and see if there's anywhere where there was normally one kept, because I wondered about Jim's closet. Uh, but then we also have, remember, in Jim's closet, there's trash dumped all over the place. And so I wonder, you know, because it, it was a laundry basket, or was laundry baskets in the Kingwood case, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these home invaders were looking for laundry baskets. Right. They could be the kind of invaders that will use whatever's available to them at the time. Right. So in in the Kingwood case, you know, maybe there was laundry baskets sitting right there. So they grabbed them and said, hey, we'll use these. Whereas in the Melgar case, maybe it's like, oh, here's a trash can. We can throw stuff in here or obviously the backpack. And they used the backpacks in the uh, the Kingwood case as well. But then there's also Liz pointed out in the in the garage and some photos that she took. There were like bags, backpacks uh, that are made for tools that are in the garage that are empty. And the police said, you know, they, the, the Jim would use those to carry tools. But again, there was no tools in them. So, it, you know, it's possible that was because remember, whatever happened, if the Melgar case was, in fact, a home invasion, then that plan got aborted. You know, they were they were in the process of going through the house, finding the valuables, packing stuff up, setting it out by the garage for whenever their ride got there to pick them up. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. Jim gets killed and they get the hell out of there and they aborted. So that's. That's why, to me, it looks very much unstaged, like it was very in a very authentic crime scene in the fact that you can see that a lot of things weren't done completely. They were kind of in the middle of doing things when it comes to the way Jim was tied up and the backpack in the garage, that they just aborted the plan once Jim was killed. Tracy says, I found it curious that the father from the other home invasion was able to get the woman to pull off the side of the road and to stay there while waiting for police. How did he actually manage to do that? You know, again, that's one of those specific questions that I don't know the answer to because I didn't get a chance to ask it because uh, that was actually right about where we were at in the conversation with me just letting her kind of run through things the first time when she said that she'd be willing to do an interview. So I, I didn't ask any further questions. I do know that Isabel's family owned guns. They had guns. They just couldn't get to them. You know, as she told me, like they, they never had a chance. You know, they're they're sitting there relaxed, not expecting anything to happen. And then within seconds, there's four guys coming in and they have guns and they're screaming and yelling at them and they have their kids in front of them. So they had guns in the house, but they just couldn't get to them to use them to defend themselves. So I, I don't know. Maybe her husband grabbed a gun and held her at gunpoint. She's a very small woman, five foot two. You know, I mean, I don't, maybe he physically grabbed her and restrained her. I mean, can you imagine if this happened in, in your house to your family? Imagine if someone came into your house and kicked your 14-year-old child in the back of the head and then pointed a gun at their head and drug them downstairs and tied them up and threatened to kill them. Uh, I think at that point, for, for anybody, it doesn't matter if it's man, woman, or child that did it. There's going to be a rage that you're going to want to grab that person. So he, he may have just physically grabbed her and restrained her. I'd put money on him having a gun with him. Yeah, I think that's it's probably the most likely scenario, but we have to just kind of assume because, again, I didn't get the answer to that. Serena says, Kingwood is a compelling story, but this is a big city, county, and state. Similarities don't help if we can't tie this to a pattern. I didn't hear a smoking gun of true connection in the episode. Did I just miss it? Well, no, there's no smoking gun, and, and I don't know if this particular listener is a new listener 
or just doesn't quite realize how we do things. But what we're doing is we're conducting a real investigation, a new investigation at this point in the series in real time. You're going through this investigation almost at the exact same pace I am. And so this is just step one. So what I do is go back to the beginning and say, okay, if I was investigating this case as the the detectives on the scene, how would I do it? Well, the first, obviously, we are going to assess the crime scene. For me, I think that criminal behavioral analysis and profiling is a very useful tool. That's why we had Jim Clemente on, give us an idea of who he thinks we should be looking for. Uh, we investigated Sandy at length uh, to see if it's possible that it was her. Uh, look at the people that are closest to the Melgars. And then look at this is such a random act or seemingly a random act, but has such a specific M.O. For me, the next thing that I would want to do is look and see, are there any similar cases with a similar M.O.? And and I'm saying this is what I would do, but this is what law enforcement would do. This is what the Harris County Sheriff's Office should have done. The, the first thing they should have done, besides, you know, they should have obviously looked at Sandy, as they did, and then other family members that were close, and then look and see, did has there ever been another home invasion recently around Harris County where people were tied up and, and maybe put into closets or or whatever? So this is literally, I mean, we're not even, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. It's the the beginning of a ripple in the water of the iceberg where we're just looking in to see, okay, are there similar home invasions? Yes, there are. It's it's very oddly specifically similar. Uh, we've looked at the geography of it. Is it is it potentially possible for these these crimes to be connected? And again, as I mentioned on the on the episode, there are people that say, well, you know, Kingwood and the, and Southwest Dallas are an hour away. Well, but the problem is we know for a fact where Sinead lived. Uh, I, I have two addresses for her because she also was married in 2010, and so there's addresses for her and her husband. And on her arresting documents, we have her home address, and it's way in the southwest corner of Houston, and in Kingwood's more northeast corner of Houston. But so, so if, if she's willing to travel from there to the Kingwood area, then certainly she'd be willing to travel from there to the Melgar's home, which is less than half that distance. She would go right past the Melgar's home to get there. And also, I think that it's, it's very likely. Because as I said, there was a string of home invasions in Kingwood and there was neighborhood watches and there was there was um, websites that were put up and forums for people to catch these folks. It's very likely, I think, for them to then move out of that neighborhood and find another neighborhood to work in because this happened. But, you know, th- there is no smoking gun. What we see is a very similar crime with a similar M.O. with perpetrators that were out and free at the time of the Melgar's crime. So that's just step one. And then that doesn't mean they did it. It doesn't mean it was the same people, but we're going to continue to investigate this lead to find out. Because remember, we have lots of unknown DNA at the Melgar crime scene. So if we can get profiles from the people that were involved in Kingwood, or if we can figure out who the rest of the people in the Kingwood home invasion were, then we can see, is there actual physical evidence that can connect these people to the crime itself? And then also, we've just finally launched and released publicly the reward fund. So, so right now, make sure you share with everyone. Go to all of our social media and look for the the poster that was created by listener Zach Weaver for the Jim Melgar Reward Fund. It's twenty thousand dollars. Probably by the time you're hearing this on Friday, there should be a great article. I'm going to assume it's going to be great in Texas Monthly because uh, Michael Hall of Texas Monthly, he's the one that wrote a great article about Ed H case. He's a very well known and incredibly well respected journalist with Texas Monthly. Is actually writing an article about this case and about the reward fund to put into Texas Monthly. 
He said that would be out probably Thursday. You're hearing this Friday, so it should be out by now. But I think that reward may trigger someone too, you know, because we have, if we can get it, if we, if we can get it in front of the right people to be aware of the fact there's a $20,000 reward. If there were in fact four, five, six people involved in this crime, certainly some of them told someone who told someone there's got to be a large number of people that know what happened here and know who's involved. So that, that's all part of what we're going to use to figure out who actually killed Jim Melgar. It's not as simple as here's a similar home invasion. So these people did it. We're not even close to that. I don't know if they did it. It's just one step at the very beginning of our investigation. Kimberly says, were Sandy's lawyers able to use the Kingwood case in their appeal? Or was this something we just found out? It's not necessarily something we just found out. And remember, Liz herself has been investigating her father's murder pretty much since the day it happened. You know, no one else seemed to care uh, but her and Sandy for a long time. The sheriff's office really didn't seem to. They only were worried about uh, going after Sandy. So when I found this case and some others, and this was months and months ago, but I remember I shared it with, with Liz. I'm like, holy crap, look at this. This this other home invasion so similar, and she said, "Yeah, look in the Dropbox. I've got a file on it." So she already knew a lot about it. So, and she again had shared this with the attorneys prior to trial. It wasn't used at trial. I don't know how it could have been used. I think immediately if this was brought in, that Barnett would have objected to relevance, and it would have been sustained properly. Even though it is compelling, this is information that should have been looked into and investigated further by the detectives. So once you get to trial, it, it, how you can get evidence in, there's quite a balance there as to what can get in and what can't. So I don't think they could have used it. As far as the appeal, we're just not at that phase. When we're in the direct appeal phase, remember, we're only looking at constitutional issues from the trial itself. So you're, we're not raising new issues. Now, even if we were in habeas right now, this still wouldn't be strong enough. We couldn't file a, a, a writ of actual innocence before the courts and say, you know, look, there was another home invasion that was kind of like this. That that's not enough. So I and I, I want to be clear on that again because I think some people were looking at like you know like this was this was it. We found the killers. We didn't. We're just getting started. And speaking of the appeal, Bob, on the fan page, Liz Rose posted an update on Sandy's appeal where she said the state's response brief was due on Monday. They filed for an extension and it was granted. So now they have until May thirtieth. Yeah. So uh, some people have been asking about this too. Like Mike said, Liz posts all this information. It's on the fan page, but just to put that into a tight little package. So the Seacrest obviously filed their brief and it was accepted for Sandy's appeal. And the way this works is then the state is allowed then to file a response to that appeal brief. Basically, the defense is saying this is why Sandy should get a new trial. And then the state will say, nope, this is why she shouldn't. That brief was due this past Monday on the 15th of April. Uh, the state had filed a motion to extend their time limit before they had to file their brief. And, it, and what happened Monday was that motion was granted. So as Mike and Liz said, the state now has until May 30th before they have to file their response to the initial appeal brief from the Seacrest. And then you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see another extension after that. I think they can extend it a couple times before the court will finally say, no, you need to get this done. And considering the leniency that the defense got, I would expect some leniency for the prosecution if they want to take more time to file their response. Uh, because remember, you know, the, the Seacrest filed extensions and then they filed the brief that was too long requesting to exceed the word limit. It was denied. 
They filed another extension. That was accepted. Then they finally filed the brief with, again, less words, but still too many, with a motion to be allowed to exceed the word limit. And then that was finally accepted, and the appeals brief is now accepted. So as much as it's frustrating for all of us, because you know we, we want to get the ball rolling here, we want to get to the point where we have a hearing on this, I don't think that we can expect the court then to tell the state they can't have an extension after the defense had so many extensions. And this isn't uncommon, but as of right now, the state has till May 30th to file a response to Sandy's brief. Okay, and our last question is from listener Todd. He wanted to know if we could make an ad-free version of our podcast available on our Patreon page. Yeah, so this was great. And Todd, I appreciate you asking the question. I've always just assumed no, that we couldn't do that because of our contracts. And of course, I mean, you all know that the ads are what pay for this entire operation. Everything we do from our salaries to the travel we have to do to DNA testing and all of that stuff, it's all funded by advertising. So, you know, I didn't think much of ever doing an ad-free version. You know, we do have the Patreon that has several levels. Uh, you have the, at the $5 level right now, you get access to videos of these episodes, uncut, unedited videos of the recordings of the Friday follow-up. Uh, and then at the $15 level, I think you get a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt. And at 30, you get a Truth and Justice Army hat. And then it, it goes up from, I think there's another level where you get both. And then there's the $100 level is you actually get to host a Friday follow-up episode. And in that Patreon, that that is that very helpful. That that helps cover a lot more of these expenses, especially it really helps with you know buffer that cost with the travel and you know, of course for our insurance and things like that. But you know, I've, I've never thought about putting out an ad free version of the podcast. I didn't think we could, to be honest, because of our contracts with our advertisers. But I did reach out to you know we have, we have a new company we're with now, Wondery. I reached out to Wondery and asked them, and they said yes, it's carved out. You can absolutely do that. So starting today. First of all, for all of you on Patreon who are already $5 level or the silver level, I think it's called supporters, you don't have to do anything. If you go on to Patreon, starting today, we will drop all of our episodes without ads at the same time as we drop our episodes on our normal feed. And from here on out, we're going to start doing that because uh, I think that that is, you know, I think that's a good reward for people that want to help out and donate. We like to give something back to you. And so for those of you that, you know, would really like to listen without the advertisements, it'll be $5 a month on Patreon if you're in that that reward level, which amounts to, what do we say, about 60-some cents per episode. Yeah, I think it was 67 cents. Yeah, that'll get you the episodes just like everyone else except for without the ads. And if you don't mind the ads or you like the ads, then don't worry about any of this. Of course, we always, we always love the support on Patreon. It helps out a lot. But I, I know a lot of people get upset when we have too many ads and understand that we don't have really control over that. You know, we have four ad slots for every episode, and they're they're inserted for the most part by Wondery. So, you know, we record our episode and put our markers in, and then sometimes we'll listen and there's one ad, sometimes there's two, sometimes there's four. So we don't have a whole lot of control over that. But if you would like to hear the the podcasts without advertisements, all I have to do is go to patreon.com slash truth and justice, sign up for the silver reward level, which is the five dollars a month, and you'll immediately have access not only to our ongoing episodes without advertisements, but you'll also get for what's it been? It's been over a year we've been doing the videos, right? Yeah, we're coming up on it if it hasn't. Yeah, so you'll you'll have a year's worth of behind the scenes videos as well because we've been posting those. Now we're not going to go back; we just don't have the time to go back to all of our old catalog of episodes and pull the ads out and put those up. So we're not we're not kind of doing that retroactively. But 
Starting this week, we're going to put up an ad-free version of the podcasts, just the audio version, on Patreon for the $5 and up supporters. So anything over the silver level, you'll get to access to that. And then for you you folks that are already there that like the videos and anybody new that's maybe interested in the videos, those are still coming too. So every Friday we'll put up the behind-the-scenes video and the Friday follow-up without ads. And then on Sundays we'll put up the ad-free version of the main episode. It sounds great. And by the way, thank you everybody for your Patreon donations. It means the world to us and it keeps us doing what we're doing. It really does. We appreciate it. And again, I want to stress too, for anybody that doesn't have a problem with the advertisements and doesn't want to pay for the podcast, this podcast has been and always will be free. You will always have access to the full content free. There's just some some bonus perks that you can get on Patreon if you want them and you want to donate and help out the show. But none of it's necessary. The people on Patreon are not getting any more content than you guys are other than me and Mike maybe goofing around on video off the record during the the tapings of the Friday follow-up. It's usually a regrettable experience, so it might not be such a bad thing that they don't <laughs> see that stuff. <laughs> Mike doesn't like the video. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is really good to be back in the studio. Things getting back to normal. And make sure you tune in on Sunday as we continue our new investigation into finding the murderer of Jim Melgar. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Christman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Her name is pronounced Siniad.
because uh, a lot of people think that it's Sinead. Yeah. Did you know, in fact, there is no SH sound in the Spanish language? So fuck it. I hate you. Why? <laughs> I told him that two hours ago and his mind was blown. Now you're presenting this as your own information. <laughs> I want you to say four Spanish. I will I will like give you credit for that if you can say four Spanish words to me right now that aren't numbers. See? Oh, okay. <laughs> Bono? No, it's not a word. Yeah. Yeah, bathroom, right? No. Yeah, baño. Baño. Bono, baño. Definitely not bono. Are you going with which one are you going with? Gracias. Okay, okay. I'm still I'm still stuck on bono. Bien. Those are the four <laughs> words I'm choosing. Okay. Okay, so you you went with C. Yeah. Baño. Yeah. Gracias. Uh-huh. Bien. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'll make a deal with you. You can take credit for that. Okay. Like you just said. Right. But then this bit has to go in the bloopers. So the people that listen no good. The people, <laughs> take that away. The no, people no, that no, listen no. to the whole thing know that uh there was a reason. No, nah, we'll take it out. No, nah, I think we'll leave it already. I'm going to respond to what you just said. I'm going to take all that out. I want to respond to what you just said here. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to respond to what you just said. So you just said, we're going to cut back to, you just said, actually, there's no SH sound in the Spanish language, right? Uh-huh. That's actually incorrect, Mike. Uh, that that sound is used in many Spanish words. Uh, so that's not the reason. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it is addicting. And the only reason I'm on level seven is because my girlfriend made me stop the other night. <clears throat> I think maybe a nice only in there. The only reason. And the and the only reason my girlfriend and the only reason I stopped the other night was because my girlfriend made me turn it off. The only reason I'm on only on level seven. And and the only reason I'm on level seven only, is only be- that's the only you missed. Only on level seven. Only on level seven. <laughs> the only reason I'm only on level seven. The only reason I'm only on level seven is because my girlfriend made me turn it off the other night. Right? You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. 